You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Vu yet again at the podcast. Dr. Vu is truly a renaissance man because he knows many things and has a lot of expertise on many topics. And one of them, which we'll talk about today, is cannabis use in the elderly. So, Vu is an emergency family medicine and long-term care physician. In fact, I think he's taking care of over 200 patients in long-term care. So he has a lot of experience with the elderly. So that's why I think he's, he's really good to talk to about this topic. Um, he's also the host of How's My Financial Health Doc. If you're interested, I will put a link in the, in, in the letter and in, in the podcast descriptions. It's a great podcast on financial health. And finally, I need to mention this because it just happened. He is the president of the newly created Canadian Physician Pension Plan, a very exciting topic, which maybe one day I'll talk to you about, but that's not today. Today, we'll talk about cannabis in the elderly. So a bit of background before we begin. I, 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 you know, I've, the reason why I was interested in this, in this topic is because I've had a, actually quite a few of my patients over 60, 65 asking about this since it was legalized a couple of years ago in Canada. Um, but I did some digging around and I found some a survey from 2022 in Better Aging Canada, and they estimate about 30% of Canadians over the age of 50 have been starting to use cannabis. StatsCan did a study in 2019, says about seven. So I'm assuming it's somewhere in between, but that's a quite, quite sizable population. So likely if you have elderly in your care, they'll ask you this question. You might want to uh, know what to do and what to answer. Um, They've been used, they mostly use it for things such as chronic pain, inflammation, sleep issues, muscle pain, and anxiety. And that's been my experience as well, anecdotally. But, but Vu, what about your experience? What, what, do, you, what do you see in terms of, of use? Uh, has it been increasing? Because you see a lot more elderly than I do, and you probably have a better idea on the, on, on the statistics and demographics. Well, yeah, um, Dimitri, you know, I, I have a family practice and I also work in long-term care, but I would say that most of my patients in family practice have not approached me the way that they have approached you, um, me and mainly in my long-term care population. Uh, and sometimes it's the resident themselves and sometimes it's the family. And so if you look at studies done uh, in the U.S., the trends have been going up. So in patients over the age of 65, in 2006, there was only 0.4% of uh, those individuals over 65 using some form of cannabis. And in 2015, it jumped to 2.9%. Um, in the last uh, three years, so 2018 to 2021, in the US, 15% of older adults says they've used cannabis within the last three years. And as you were saying, you were right. So 78% of the users were using it for pain and arthritis. Uh, we're using it for sleep disturbance, insomnia, anxiety, and depression. Uh, I will say that for my own population in the long-term care, I use it for two more reasons. One is anorexia. Uh, as you can understand, as the residents now have a more severe cognitive impairment in dementia, sometimes they don't understand why they need to eat or they lose their appetite. So we have to add the cannabis to that mix so that 
it stimulates their appetite. And the other thing that I've started seeing more and more, especially being used by our geriatric psychiatrists, is the use of nabilone. Nabilone, which is a synthetic THC, they add that to the mix to control the anxiety, but also to control BPSD. So BPSD stands for behavior psychosis symptoms in dementia. So as residents develop more and more severe dementia, they now exhibit inhibitory uh, symptoms. And sometimes some of those are psychosis, hallucination, uh, and agitation. So I've seen a lot of my geriatric psychiatrists add nabilone to the mix. Also, uh, some of my geriatric psychiatrists have hinted, they haven't started yet, but have hinted to using um, the the herb itself, uh, not not a synthetic uh, THC nabilone, but the herb itself. Obviously, not in a vaporizing or not in a smoking form, but more in an oil form or capsule form. So those have been uh, what I've seen lately. There actually was a study done by a good friend of mine. She's a nurse practitioner working at one of the hospitals in the suburb of uh, Toronto, so in in Richmond Hill, where I live. And she takes care of about uh, a a cohort of 60 residents uh, that is attached to the hospital. And and this is long-term care. And what has happened is she initiated the the medical cannabis program in in that facility. And what she has been able to do was in a few, in two or three of the cases, she had residents who were not eating at all to now being fed and eating. She had two or three residents who uh, was not socializing at all, totally withdrawn. And after using the medical cannabis was now socializing and socializing with family. But the most important thing uh, out of her uh, cohort is that she was able to reduce the amount and the frequency of antipsychotics for BPSD in her population from 100% of those patients to about 10%. So obviously, uh, not everybody will benefit from it, but there was a marked, marked reduction. And that was publicized in a case report um, in the uh, Journal of Nurse Practitioner. And that came out in the summer of, of last year, 2021. So again, these are anecdotal case report, cohort reports, there's going to be obviously more evidence and literature coming out in the future. Well, you know, I, I, when I was working in long-term care, we had so few tools was for BPSD. I mean, really, we had antipsychotics, right? So I'm glad to hear that we have another tool in the toolkit, which works very well, actually. That's, I mean, anecdotal, but that, that's a significant decrease in and dangerous behavior and really harmful behavior. So maybe we can, we can, because there, you, you mentioned it's good for pain. It's good for, for mental health issues and insomnia and really good for anorexia, which by the way, I had no idea that it was being used for that. So maybe we can focus on each one of those categories. Let's start with pain because that's the most of what I see people coming in with issues around pain where other options have failed or have caused problems. Uh, opioids cause problems, constipation, cognitive problems. NSAIDs cause problems, kidney, kidney issues, bleeding, uh, stomach problems. So I'm, I'm curious, why do you think there's such a big uptake for pain management? Is it because the other options are failing? Is it because they're too limited? What, what are your thoughts, Lou? 
Well, I think it's a, a threefold, a threefold. One, um, obviously, as we age, we develop more joint pain, more arthritis. So it is a prevalent complaint as we grow older. So there's obviously more demand, more indications for this particular purposes. And so therefore, we tend to use more of something, right? More of Tylenol, more of ibuprofen, more of, you know, Voltaren gel or diclofenac gel, whatever. So we tend to use more. That's the one thing. So that's why we, we see that up in demand. The second thing is the use of medical cannabis has been fairly well studied in pain control, right? So as opposed to, you know, for example, cannabis in seizure, <laughs> not as well studied versus medical cannabis in the treatment and management of chronic pain, that has been fairly well studied. So if you look at the Journal of the American Geriatric Society 2018 article, it lists, you know, what are the indications that have good evidence? So nociceptive pain, uh, moderate to weak evidence, okay? But this is since 2018, we're now 2022, so it's worth four years later. In neuropathic pain, it has moderate quality of evidence. In spasticity, moderate quality. Uh, when you look at nausea, vomiting, anorexia, moderate quality of evidence to show that it works. So over time, what we will see is longer history, more studies, more scientific literature to support or refute but at this current moment, it seems that for at least for chronic pain, for neuropathic pain and nociceptive pain, it seems that there is good support for the use of medical cannabis. So that's the second reason. And the third reason, and I think is because um, we've used um, the synthetic THC for quite a bit of time, right? So the medication with the trade name Nabilone, I don't know if I should say it online here, but that particular product has been on the market for a long, long time. And people who treat chronic pain, uh, doctors who treat, uh, who work in palliative care have been very, very used to this medication for a long time. And as you remember, uh, this medication was used for anorexia and vomiting and weight loss in the HIV population. I don't know if you recall that. And so, um, so it's, it's definitely something that you know, physicians have been very comfortable in using. And I think what they're seeing is they're seeing our colleagues in chronic pain, they're seeing our colleagues in palliative care, using it more and more and saying, wait a minute, I can't use an opioid, as you said, right? An opioid will make them dizzy, give them dry mouth, a constipation, they fall, they break a hip. Uh, and then if they break a hip, it's 50% mortality at one year. Oh, can't do that. Especially there's so much literature to to push you against using opioid in chronic pain, <laughs> right? It's not a good drug. I, I, I feel really bad every time I write hydromorphone for my patients for chronic osteoarthritic knee pain. I know I have to do it because I have to relieve suffering, but I feel so bad. I feel so dirty because I'm, I'm working against evidence base here, but I've got no other choice. Um, I can't really write an NSAID. I, I can't write ibuprofen because my patients in long-term care, they all have CKD and some of them are CKD stage three, stage four. Um, some of them have GI bleeds. They're on 
they're on a pixel band because they have a fib. Like there, there's so many contraindications to NSAIDs that I'm like, okay, so I can't, I can't really use opioids. I can't really use NSAIDs. Um, I have Tylenol, but I can only max out Tylenol. At some point, I'll use the diclofenac gel, but that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. Um, pregabalin, gabapentin will work, but it's only for neuropathic pain. But then I trade, what do I trade off? I trade off sedation. I trade off anticholinergics type of symptoms. And then they feel dizzy, they fall, they break a hip, and now, now I feel bad again, right? And so it's not like there's that many tools for those chronic issues in the elderly, unfortunately. And, and I'm curious, and I agree with you, it's, it's, it, you get stuck into this catch-22 situation where you have nothing. If you give something with a pain, you cause all these other issues. Constipation is a big one in my patient population. It's horrible. Right? People don't realize how horrible it is to be constipated like that. So it's glad, I'm glad to have another tool. And I'm glad to know that there's good evidence that's been looked over for many years supporting uh, pain control. Uh, because there's a bit of resistance, I find, still with the pain control issue. But thank you for, for stating that. Now, I'm curious because is this a way to wean people off opioids? Like, have you been successful in sort of using cannabis for pain as an opioid sparing strategy or decreasing the dose of opioids in your population? So, uh, the answer is yes, there is a strategy to wean patients off chronic use of opioid for chronic pain. Um, and so the use is with THC uh, and CBD. Now we have to remember that's not just THC or CBD. For this to be effective, there has to be a combination of THC, CBD, and a little bit of the entourage with the other terpenes and all that. And so when we talk about medical cannabis, we're not strictly talking about just THC. We're not talking strictly about CBD. That being said, so the literature that looks at, you know, the strategy of weaning off opioid using medical cannabis is weak to moderate. I can't say strong. It's weak to moderate. Uh, and it's something that I have tried even in my own uh, elderly population in long-term care, not in family practice. So these are the old of the old with the comorbidities. And I've had a few successes. I can't say that it worked for everyone, obviously, but I've had a few successes where the family was very happy that we were able to use the medical cannabis and wean down the, the, the amount and the frequency of the use of the hydromorphone. Um, and with that came down the hallucination and the, uh, and the agitation and the confusion. And also, as we wean down the use of the opioid, there's something else that we notice. Uh, obviously, the residents are more alert and they're more awake and their appetite comes back. Whereas before, they were totally sedated. <laughs> they were totally sedated by the hydromorphone. And so they weren't eating. And now you add this medical cannabis. First of all, they're more alert. They start eating. But the medical cannabis also increases their appetite. So family were really, really happy with that type of, uh, of outcome. No, no, that that that's great, and you know, thank you for that information. So we've talked about pain control. The second thing I want to ask you about is because again, I get this a lot is for insomnia. Is there any good evidence for treatment of insomnia with cannabis? So the with insomnia, the answer is uh, yes. There is 
good evidence? Is there great evidence? Um, I have to probably temper that a little bit. Okay. So um, insomnia is a huge, huge problem uh, in our elderly population. Uh, they have disturbed uh, circadian uh, rhythms. They 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 have a fragmented sleep, and sometimes they have a difficulty falling asleep. But most of the time, is they sleep and they have early awakenings. Um, so, uh, the CBD component of the medical cannabis is what's helping them. Uh, but again, it's you need to add a little bit of the THC. So, in in my population where you know the family were not ready to pay for the medical cannabis yet i've tried the the synthetic thc and it, it was a hit and miss it wasn't really working uh, i do have a few residents who came into my home already on medical cannabis and so they were already on the cbd slash thc combination more heavily weighted towards the cbd uh, and with that they were sleeping very well and they obviously they've had that for a number of years and they did not want me to touch it um so in, when it comes to insomnia there is quite a bit of literature describing its efficacy okay good to know so let's move on to mental health and and as you were saying bpsd um, in your experience is it something that can be used for conditions because you know cannabis may cause anxiety may exacerbate anxiety so but can it be used for conditions such as depression anxiety um, obviously we'll talk about the bpsd a bit later because i think that's really important but what has you been experienced with mental health problems and cannabis use good question there there is actually uh literature uh, on this this being said, the literature is kind of mixed too, okay? And it's been limited studies so far. Now, keep in mind that these are old literature prior to the legalization of medical cannabis. So doctors and scientists had to sort of do these studies um, sort of <laughs> in a illegal way in, in their own little uh, basement, right? So then they were publishing this. But now that uh, medical cannabis is legalized, they can now openly do studies. And so you'll see oh, in the next few years, more and more studies being done with medical cannabis. So and when it comes to anxiety, the evidence with THC is mixed. Okay, so I can't say it's strong, it's mixed. Um, and there's always a risk of potentially making it worse. As you said, uh, the THC component can cause euphoria. However, I've heard this from uh, someone who uh, studied CBD and THC for the longest time. And this sentence is really correct. And this sentence goes with another sentence, which I'll tell you this first sentence first. So when we start um, medical cannabis with individuals, I think whether it's elderly or young, it's always go low. Oh, sorry, start low, go slow, right? Start low, go slow. Now, with the elderly population, I would say go low, low, and, and, and titrate slow, slow, right? Even, even lower, even slower. And so if you are at a point where you're now causing agitation, you're causing euphoria, it's because you've overshoot, overdose. okay? So dial it back down. That being said, 
some people just react badly, right? The way I could react badly to ibuprofen. In fact, I get urticaria. Or if you give me duloxetine, I may have euphoria. Nobody knows until we try. And so it's no different with THC CBD. It's really trying to um, titrate and monitor and titrate even slower in the elderly population. So THC definitely mixed review with potentially worsening. Uh, CBD, the, the evidence for CBD is stronger. Again, not strong, just stronger, uh, but there are limited studies at this point. But I, I anticipate, fully anticipate that it will be more and more studied over time as our geriatric psychiatrists are using it more and more now. When it comes to depression, the evidence for THC, again, is mixed with a potential of worsening. And the evidence for CBD is positive at this point. Psychosis, well, you know, uh, THC appears to increase the risk. So this being said, it's very interesting that even my patients with BPSD, my geriatric psychiatrists are putting these patients on THC. So is there something that they know that we don't know? Or is are they just avant-gardiste? Are they, are they seeing something, a signal in the literature that helps them move that way? Now, remember that I'm quoting you studies done from a long time ago, right? So this is prior to legalization of cannabis. So maybe with now the legalization of cannabis, they're seeing more and more signals from the literature that it in fact works. And they're feeling more comfortable in prescribing THC to BPSD and psychosis. I think it's it's left to be seen what the what the future studies will tell us, but it sounds like it's something that is safe to do in a selective population. So, so just to clarify, do you prescribe it to your patients, or is it to your geriatricians that do it for so, BPSD? Yeah, so very interesting question. Uh, I did not initiate them. So I came to one of the homes where I had this patient who was extremely challenging to control her BPSD. And the geriatric psychiatrist who've, who's known her for many, many years, one day wrote Nabilone. I'm like, what? Nabilone, what is this? And I vaguely remember back then, I vaguely remember what is Nabilone? So I started, you know, the best dictionary in the world is Google. So I Googled it and I'm like, oh, THC. Um, and so I started questioning. And then a few months later, he also put another of my patient on Nabilone. I'm like, wait a minute. It can't just be a fluke here, right? Something is happening. And so I, I uh, emailed that geriatric psychiatrist. Says, yeah, I'm going to be using it more and more on selective uh, patients. Now, the, the one patient that, that the first one that he tried it on, it didn't, did not help. The second patient that he tried it on did help. Um, and uh, I work in five different long-term care right now, and uh, and and those residents are managed by three different geriatric psychiatrists. And I noticed that among the three of them, they don't have the same comfort with THC. The one that prescribed it two times, he was comfortable with it. The other one, again, still not comfortable with it. And I posed to him the question: If the nabilone did not work and does not work? Are you ready to move on to medical cannabis that has both the THC, CBD, terpenes, and entourage effect from it? And it doesn't seem like he's ready to jump there yet. Okay. And 
What's your experience with then treating anorexia um, in your patients with with CBD or THC? Sorry, or I guess I should say cannabis because it's it's a bit more complex than one or the other. So I myself have started many many residents on Nabilone. Um, again, you start really 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 low, and you titrate it really really slow. Um, I would say I've had about 50%, 60% success rate. So those that have responded well started eating again. Um, so you might, if I give you an example, what I mean, some of those residents were at 25, 50% of their meals. And after the Nabilone, they were like 75 to 100% of their meals and they stopped losing weight. Okay, so that's how I gauged the success. The other group that did not really work, well, their their percentage of meal intake did not increase, but worse, in some of them, they were a little bit more sedated, okay? It comes with the territory of the adverse events. And so for those individuals, I had to stop it. Um, and so, you know, then you go the regular conventional way, you know, the vitamins, the, the resource, the boost, uh, the different things that you try to, you know, give those resins enough calories and protein. Um, but again, it was a, it was a hit and miss, uh, I would say 50 to 60%, but definitely worth a trial. In Ontario, if you prescribe Nabilone 0.5 milligram and above, it's covered by ODB. But if you prescribe really, really low and you have to start really, really low and you start at 0.025, well, that particular pill is not covered. And so even though you want to start really, really low, you may still have to give the 0.5 and cut it in half. Um, And so that's what I have had to do. Uh, Different provinces may have different um, uh, guidelines on what is covered on a provincial formulary. Uh, it's just a question of knowing which one fits your province and how you can go around it. It's the same in Quebec. I have a patient on Nabil- on Nabilone for appetite issues, and we have to cut the zero point five and half, otherwise it's not covered. But yes, yeah. check check with your check with your province. Um, I'm curious, Vu. I have two follow up questions. Obviously, we have to talk about adverse events because you know those are important. But do families? Have you met families that? put up any resistance when you mention using cannabis for BPSD or for anorexia in, in your long-term care homes? Absolutely not. Okay. Um, for the patients, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a different example. So for the patients with anorexia, patients who are not eating, the families are out of their mind. They don't know what to do anymore. The resource to boost and this and that, and they're seeing their their loved ones not eating. You know, you know that in every almost every culture, food is a central part of life, right? Uh, in Chinese culture, in Asian culture, in Latino culture, in you know Euro- European culture, it doesn't matter which culture. Everything revolves around food, and so when you see your loved one not eating, it's a big piece of their life is gone, right? And so it's very distressing for families. And so when you're at that point, um, anything that you can do to help them. And in fact, a few families came to me and says, Dr. Tran, can we try the medical cannabis? And I'm like, yes, absolutely, we can try. The problem is this, is not that I don't want to try. 
The problem is when I write the medical cannabis, if I happen to be in a home that is not ready for it, meaning the staff doesn't understand it, the nurses don't understand it, the pharmacy in that home does not understand or dispense medical cannabis, you, you can't get it in, right? And so I'm going to say to you know, one drop of oil with every meal, and then the nurse will say, well, how do I measure the drop? And then the director of care will say, well, how do I make sure the nurse doesn't take the drop for her? <laughs> how do I control that? And so if there's no policy in the home to actually dispense the medication, then you can't get it in. So that's where the issue was. It wasn't that the families didn't want it. It's not that I didn't want to prescribe it. It was difficult to get it in because there was logistically no barriers and boundaries to make sure that the substance is fairly well monitored. But in a home where that was possible, the families wanted it. So that's anorexia. The other one was BPSD. Um, in BPSD, when the geriatric psychiatrist recommended the Nabilone, the family were all happy to have it. The family were happy to, to get it done because the way that the, that the resident is behaving is not their natural mom. It's not their dad. They don't understand why dad is so aggressive or why dad is yelling or why dad is hallucinating. So for them, again, very traumatic. Um, the antipsychotic, the, the quetiapine, the risperidone, the aripiprazole, none of that is working. And so they're at a point where something must be done. So for the BPSD, that was also uh, welcomed by the family. Um, the one that is probably not as strong and welcome is probably for insomnia. That uh, they want, you know, the they want the lorazepam, <laughs> they want the clonazepam, they they want to really get them to sleep. Um, and finally, the anxiety. Um, there was a few of my residents that the family says, yeah, dad is very anxious nature. Mom is a very anxious nature. Uh, she's always tried this in the past. And I wouldn't mind if you tried medical cannabis. Again, the, the issue was not me not wanting it. It was difficult to get it into the home. And unfortunately, Nabilone is not a very good medication for to help with insomnia. And I'm curious um, then for, so let's say that you have a patient and, they're, and they have BPSD and you haven't tried anything yet. So do you usually start with Napalone or is it something that you, or sorry, the cannabinoids, or do you, do you start something with an, with an antipsychotic first or be, I guess you always start with behavioral modification, by the way, you always do that. That's the first step, but let's say that doesn't work. What's your next pharmacological choice? Is it the, the cannabis or is it the antipsychotic? What, what's your approach? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And my approach now will probably change in a few years. Okay. So I'm saying this as it relates to 2022. So in 2022, the literature, remember the literature for cannabinoids in BPSD is still not that strong. So it's weak to maybe moderate. And so according to, you know, psychiatry and to neurologists and to geriatric psychiatrists, the use of cannabinoids is still a second, if not third line therapy. And so 
for all of these resident patients that have this BPSD, in the, inevitably there is some quetiapine in the picture. Inevitably there is some trazodone. Inevitably there's risperidone or aripiprazole. Um, and so cannabinoid is left to um, second to third line. This being said, you know, all these medications of antipsychotics do not come free. They all come with trade-offs. And obviously the trade-off is sedation. The trade-off is uh, dizziness and falls. And so that's why it is very important that, you know, we maintain and keep the use of antipsychotics at a relatively low level within our nursing home because of falls, which is a big issue. So at the current moment, if we want to balance between, you know, being able to control the symptoms of BPSD versus falls, I suspect that over time with better literature, uh, with better evidence, I think it will probably become a second line. And I'm, I will not be surprised if it became first line. But the acceptance of cannabinoids um, in relation to, you know, mental health and mental illness, especially in the elderly, is something that we have to tread carefully and slowly. So I may be, you know, 10, 15 years from now before I change my mind. Uh, but for now, it is still a second, if not third line therapy. So we'll have to do a podcast again in 10 years and see uh see where you stand. So, so it's, it's just summarized. It sounds like there's evidence for, and I'm using cannabinoids and cannabis equally, but it's, 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 it really is the same thing used for chronic pain, for insomnia in some ways for mental health, but everybody, people will react differently to it for BPSD and for anorexia. So it's good to know all these things. Now the, the sticky issue is what about side effects? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the side effects? Well, what are the most common side effects you see? And what are the ones that you have to be careful with? Okay. So uh, let me just separate, you know, a little bit of the side effects from the CBD and side effect from the THCs, just so that we have a little bit of an understanding. And then I'll put that together in some side effects that are common. So the side effects coming from the CBD are dry mouth, uh, diarrhea, Interestingly, it could also reduce your appetite as opposed to increase your appetite. It could give you drowsiness as well, okay, and fatigue. THC is the uh, psychotropic part of the cannabis. So euphoria, nervousness, agitation, giddiness, psychosis, okay? So that's how we sort of understand the adverse effects of each. So in terms of what are the most common adverse effects I've seen in my residence, the number one is still sedation, okay? Is it frequent? No, but it's still the number one of of all the side effects I've seen. So sedation. Uh, Another one could be cough. Now, cough is more associated with the vaping, but none of my residents are vaping. Uh, You could, some of those residents may have tachycardia. They also may have postural hypotension. So in patients who already have a risk for autonomic dysfunction, for example, if they are Parkinson's or they have high blood pressure pills and stuff like that, if you add this to it, you may potentially exacerbate the postural hypotension. 
Um, and the other effects that we've talked about throughout the entire podcast are the mental health, right? The uh, agitation, the euphoria, the increase in anxiety, right? So that can happen. Patients who are already have a underlying psychotic disease, for example, schizophrenia, and those are probably not the resin that I would use uh, medical cannabis on because there's a fairly high risk of unearthing those psychosis. And just to follow up, has this increase in sedation led to an, an increase in falls? Because that's one of the issues we see with sedation and using other drugs. Absolutely. It can, right? It can. Um, again, in my population, a lot of my residents are already wheelchair bound. And so it's, they didn't fall from height and, uh, and they didn't fall because they were they're wheelchair bound. But I can definitely see in my outpatient population, for example, my elderly patients from, from family medicine, then yeah, those can definitely cause sedation to the point where they can fall, trip or something. Um, and when we started, again, in my population of LTC, when I give the medication, the, they're monitored by the nurses and the PSWs, right, 24-7. So the moment they have the sedation and they notice, um, you know, Mrs. Smith is not eating or drinking as well. She's more tired. She's sleepy. Then I get a phone call and I say, oh, well, we started the XYZ medical cannabis or we started the Nabilone, whatever. I think we should hold it until I come back and see. And so um, the few times that I had to stop the medication, it was because of sedation. But, but as you said, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, you start low, 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 and you go slow, 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 right? Exactly. Okay. So that's always important. Listen, Vu, I, I have 10,000 more questions on this dosing and form, but I, I think we'll have to leave it for another podcast because I feel like it's it's a whole other can of worms. But Thank you so much for taking the time sharing your wisdom. Uh, I think this is very helpful. And again, most people, most physicians will see this being used more and more as, as years go by. I believe that fully. Well, thank you for having me, but also thank you for shedding light on this topic. Um, as a community, as a whole, we're not very comfortable with cannabis, right? Uh, for the longest time, it was a illegal substance. And so as an eMERGE doc, all I see are the bad things of <laughs> the cannabis, the patients agitated, snowed, and, and the intoxication. So I definitely have a bias towards medical, uh, sorry, towards cannabis. And so I think we all have that bias in the community as a whole because we don't understand it. But since the legalization of it, one, we cannot not understand it anymore. So there's a lot of negatives there. So, um, but the second thing is our patients and our patients' family will request them more and more. And as the literature as the literature gets better and stronger over time, we will have no choice but to face it head on, because it will become a therapy of second line, if not first line, in some indications in the future. And so I think it behooves us to really learn about this now. Um, you know, we, we follow a bell curve. There's always the people who are at the front of the line <laughs> and there's always people at the end of the line and there's all of us in between. And so I think we are no longer at the front of the line. I think we are either back of the line or we have to be in that big group. 
And I think we are at a time where everybody should move towards the big group because it's something that will become more and more prevalent as questions from family and patients come by. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm seeing as well. So thank you again, Vu. Hopefully we can have you come in again for a chat, maybe about dosing and form, but uh, thank you for your time and all the best to you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.